Welcome to Murder Minute. On today's episode, the disappearance of Georgia Cruz. But first, your true crime headlines. A Southern California man has been arrested and charged with three counts of murder for intentionally ramming his car into another vehicle, carrying six teenage boys, killing three, and injuring the others. 42-year-old Anurag Chandra of Corona, California, was arrested at his home after police found a vehicle with substantial front-end damage that matched eyewitnesses' descriptions of the suspect vehicle. Family members of the deceased teens told reporters that the boys had played a prank on the suspect, knocking on his door and then running away. Chandra allegedly chased the boys, intentionally ramming their vehicle and causing the 18-year-old driver to lose control of the Toyota Prius, crashing into a tree. Three of the six boys were trapped in the vehicle. One was pronounced dead at the scene, and two more died of their injuries after being transported to a local hospital. The other three were treated for non-life-threatening injuries and are expected to survive. Chandra is being held at the Robert Presley Detention Center in Riverside, California, where he's being held without bail on charges of murder, attempted murder, and assault with a deadly weapon. He is expected to appear in court later this week. A former Marine is facing first-degree murder charges in the death of a 16-year-old California girl last October. 19-year-old Cody Slayton, described by prosecutors as an online predator, is accused of killing 16-year-old Josephine Jimenez, whose body was found in a field in Madeira County, California, 10 days after her family reported her missing. Investigators now believe that Slayton and Jimenez met via social media and that he also communicated with several other young women around California and possibly other parts of the country. Detectives in Madeira were contacted by the Naval Criminal Investigative Service, the law enforcement agency that covers the U.S. Navy. They told police that they had identified a potential suspect during the course of their investigation of an unrelated incident. Detectives from Madeira County traveled to Oceanside, California to interview Slayton and subsequently arrested him on murder charges. He is being held on $1 million bail. A 16-year-old boy has been charged with open murder for the shooting death of his younger sister. The victim, 11-year-old Addison Redman, was shot to death in the family's home in Gratchett County, Michigan, last August. An autopsy was conducted and her cause of death was determined to be homicide. After a five-month-long investigation, her brother, Corbin Redman, 15 at the time of the killing, was arrested and charged with open murder. The charge of open murder which Redmond faces means that if there is a jury trial in the case, those jurors will be able to decide between a first-degree or a second-degree murder conviction. Corbin Redmond, now 16 years old, is being tried as an adult in the case and could spend the rest of his life behind bars if he is convicted. Those are your true crime headlines. Up next, the story of Georgia Cruz. But first, a quick break. True crime is my passion, but even I need the occasional break. So when I feel like I need a break from all the court transcripts and autopsy reports, I play Best Fiends. 
Best Fiends is an addictive, visually stunning puzzler app that takes the mobile game experience to the next level. The little creatures of Minutia lived in peace and harmony until the meteor smashed into Mount Boom, bringing with it a strange force that transformed the slugs who lived there into an army of greedy, greenery-gobbling pests. Now, the slugs are taking over the world, munching a path through Minutia and sliming up everything they touch. But a brave band of heroes is fighting back, and they need your help. Left alone when the slugs conquered most of Minutia, these unlucky bug champions are on an epic quest to solve the mystery of Mount Boom and beat back the slug advance. Download the app free now. Build your team of cute characters, level them up, discover their special powers, and defeat the slugs. Join me and over 100 million people who have already downloaded this top-rated puzzle adventure. With more than 3,000 levels, you'll never run out of fiendish fun. And Best Fiends updates the game monthly with new levels and events so it never gets old. Whether I'm in the car, on the plane, procrastinating, or trying to shake off a bad day, Best Fiends is my must-play. Download the game and join the adventure today. Get Best Fiends now. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Welcome back to Murder Minute. Today, the tragic story of Georgia Cruz. In the 1980s, Montverde, Florida, was a small town of just under 400 residents. The lakeside town just outside of Orlando was the kind of place where everyone knew their neighbors, felt safe, and families didn't think twice about leaving their doors unlocked at night. One of those families was the Cruz family. Mike Cruz, a commercial fisherman, and his wife Linda, who worked at the only convenience store in town, Stop and Go, lived on Highlands Avenue with their three children, 16-year-old Tony, 15-year-old Charles, and 12-year-old Georgia Cruz. Georgia was a fifth grader at Mineola Elementary School. She had baby blonde hair, brown eyes, and her favorite snack was Rice Krispies. She was a fan of Kenny Rogers and loved her pet bulldog, Tiger. In her free time, Georgia designed and even sewed her own dresses and colorful two-piece outfits by hand. And on weekends, Georgia went to Sunday school at the local United Methodist Church. Everyone thought the world of her, said her mother, Linda. On the afternoon of April 8, 1980, Linda, Mike, and Georgia's brother Charles left to go fishing for catfish on Lake Florence. That evening, sometime between 5.30 and 6 p.m., Georgia decided to go pick up some snacks at the stop-and-go, about a mile down the road. But Georgia was mortally afraid of the dark, so she had to hurry because dusk was fast approaching. Georgia told her brother Tony that she wouldn't be long and left the house barefoot, a habit of hers, wearing jeans and a tank top, her dog Tiger by her side, and headed down the road to the stop-and-go. But Georgia never arrived. 
When his sister still hadn't returned home after an hour, Tony knew something was wrong. It wasn't like her to wander off, and she never would have stayed out past dark. Tony rushed around the neighborhood, calling out his sister's name. Just down the street from their home, he found Tiger, sitting at a crossroad, refusing to move. Linda, Mike, and Charles returned home to find Tony in a panic. When he told his parents that Georgia still hadn't come home from the store, they called the police. By midnight, a search party was formed. Nearly half of the small town spent the night searching for Georgia. Shoulder to shoulder, they combed the woodlands and the orange groves. Bloodhounds searched the swamps, looking for Georgia's scent. There were so many people coming out, and I appreciate it, you know, said her father, Mike Cruz. Lake Florence was dragged, and helicopters searched the county from overhead, but still, there was no sign of Georgia. The thing about it is, Mike added, there were so many that they were just stomping and trampling over evidence, destroying any way that the cops could have found any evidence, just so many people. The only trail Georgia left were her tiny footprints on the dusty road, which disappeared at the intersection where her faithful dog, Tiger, sat. Tony blamed himself for not walking to the stop-and-go with his sister. Nobody in town witnessed Georgia accompanied by anyone else, and no one saw her being picked up in a car. Georgia's father, Mike, and her brothers searched tirelessly for her for two days, while the community of Montverde rallied to help the investigation, handing out flyers and continuing the search. Me and them two boys, we searched places that hadn't been seen by man in probably a hundred years, said Mike. There were places we had to carry ladders in and just walk across swamps. We went for three days without sleep. I was looking everywhere in the world we thought she could be. Every morning after Georgia disappeared, Tiger would faithfully run back out to the crossroad and sit there waiting for her to return. At nightfall, Tony or Charles would go out and bring him back home. Strangely, three weeks after Georgia disappeared, Tiger disappeared as well. The family still has no idea what happened to him. Jim Manna, Montford's police marshal, was out of his depth. Georgia's was the only homicide case the town had ever seen. It was a pretty quiet area, he recalled. It's not as big as it is now, not as commercialized as it is now. Montford was such a small, quiet, and close-knit community, Mana worked security at Disney World part-time, and then would drive home from Orlando and put in hours at the police department. When Georgia was reported missing, the Lake County Sheriff's Office got involved. Then, on April 10, 1980, Two days after George's disappearance, the crews received a phone call. Hello, yeah? You know that girl you're looking for? Yeah, the 12-year-old. Yeah, she's dead. George's grandmother received a similar call. And so did police marshal Jim Manna's wife. The phone calls 
could not be traced. The crews hoped that the calls had been a cruel prank, but on April 16, 1980, the body of Georgia Cruz was found, 25 miles away in an area of Seminole County called Fern Park. A family was on their way to Kmart and decided to take a well-known shortcut from their apartment complex. Along the way, they noticed a pungent smell. Discarded in a sparsely wooded area, they discovered the badly decomposed body of a child, laying face up with one leg bent at the knee, wearing a pair of jeans and a denim top. They called the police. George's body was so decomposed that the family would not have been able to identify her. Instead, Georgia was identified by using medical and dental records. Her family never actually saw her body. An autopsy revealed that Georgia had died by being stabbed once in the back. It also found that although Georgia was found with the top button of her jeans undone, she had not been sexually assaulted. Georgia's parents first learned about the discovery of the body from a friend who had seen it on the news. So that evening, when police knocked on their door, Mike, Linda, Tony, and Charles already knew what they were about to tell them. The murder shocked the small community. People were scared, said Jim Manna. The general consensus was that it was done by somebody local and he was still in town. There were no signs of a struggle where Georgia's footprints ended along the road. To complicate matters, because Georgia's body was found in Seminole County, deputies there took on the case as well. And as is often the case, the different jurisdictions didn't always cooperate with one another. Investigators struggled to put together a list of suspects. They looked at neighbors, family friends, her father's co-workers, and even attempted to track down people who may have just passed through the small town. Everybody was centered on who knew the family, who had access to her. Would the girl get in the car with a stranger? Seminole County Detective Jane said. Everybody was going in different directions. Then, in September of 1980, Lake County deputies announced that a man in an Iowa prison had confessed to killing Georgia Cruz, Albert Lara. Lara was incarcerated in Fort Madison for the murder of 15-year-old Jill Annette Peters when he confessed to Lake County Sheriff Malcolm McCall. I turned off what seemed to be a gravel road, well, a paved road, half and half, and 300 yards or so, I spotted a girl there. I pulled over, pulled over on her side. She was opposite of me, and I started talking to her, asking directions. And while I was talking to her, a car went by. After the car passed, I grabbed her, got out of the car and threw her in the car. Drove up about two, maybe 300 yards and spotted a house, so I turned around. I drove down a couple miles or so and pulled over where a bunch of trees were and kind of hid my car and threw her in the back of the 
I guess, the trunk or whatever. Then I drove on, found some trees, sat there and drank some beer, thought a while, and then I took her out of the trunk and put her in the back seat. I guess I commenced to rape her or something. She started struggling. She got away. I grabbed her, and at the time, my right hand found an object, an ice pick or a screwdriver or something, and I stabbed her on her lower back. But a local state attorney threw Laura's confession out. It was inconsistent with evidence found at the crime scene. The questions they asked him were almost like answers, Mana said. They more or less told him the way she was murdered, and for some reason he admitted to it. Albert Lara was ruled out as a suspect in 1980. In 1994, his confession was reconsidered. In reviewing the transcribed confession of Albert Lara, said State Attorney Gordon Oldham, there were numerous facts given that were in direct conflict with what the investigators discovered at the crime scene and subsequent autopsies. Albert Lara's confession was dismissed a second time. The inmate was known for making false confessions. Albert Lara confessed to dozens of murders and other violent crimes all over the country. Jim Manna believed that Lara had confessed to the murder of Georgia Cruz in the hopes that he might get a transfer to a nicer prison in Florida. The case went cold, and Georgia's remains were cremated and buried near her father's family in the small town of Bell in Gilchrist County. The Cruz family held on to some hope that perhaps the little girl found on April 16, 1980 wasn't their daughter. Because they never saw her body, to them, her identity had not been proven. It took me many years to believe it was her, Linda Cruz recalled. It took two decades, in fact. In the early 2000s, a DNA test was performed on a small bone sample that investigators had kept in evidence. It was a match for Georgia Cruz. Now we know we can put that part of our lives to rest, that it was her, Linda Cruz said. The next step is to figure out who done it, and we might never find out. But Leesburg Police Chief Jim Brown still believes that they already found George's killer. Given all the information I had and all the people I questioned, Laura still comes up the number one suspect. In 2013, the case had been cold for over 30 years when Georgia Cruz was suddenly back in the news. Investigators announced that they had a new lead. They were reviewing the case when they noticed a photograph of a cross necklace that Georgia was wearing when her body was discovered. It was two pieces of silver-colored metal with holes drilled into them, welded together and attached to a thick silver chain. At the time of her discovery, a family friend of the crews told investigators that the necklace belonged to Georgia. Upon reinvestigation, however, Georgia's family questioned that the necklace was hers. Georgia usually wore a small gold pendant 
that her grandmother gave her for Christmas. The cross appeared to be handmade from motorcycle parts. Linda believes that the necklace is the key to finding her daughter's killer. It's not something you'd walk out and go to the jewelry store or Walmart and find. It belonged to somebody. And either that person was there when she was abducted, or that person is the one who abducted and killed her. Detective James agrees. We need to find ownership of the cross. It was not her cross. Today, the murder of Georgia Cruz remains unsolved. Maybe we can get a resolution to it, said Detective Robert James, but it's going to be very difficult in a case that lacks physical evidence to directly link somebody. Mike and Linda still speak with James about once a month, hoping that he's found a new lead in their daughter's case. Somebody out there has done this horrible, horrible thing to this child, Linda Cruz said, and somebody might come forward. James added, Someone saw something about this little girl. Somebody knows what happened to this little girl. If you have any information on this case, please contact the Seminole County Sheriff's Office. If you would like to remain anonymous, you can do so by calling the Crime Line at 1-800-423-TIPS. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute.